Hello friends, it's been whew, some time since we last had our little chat. Um, let me tell you, quarantine has not been kind to me in the least. Um, I wish I could say, you know, I've, I've hit every hurdle and from here on out we're back to our regularly scheduled every other week programming. But quite honestly guys, the research is getting done but I don't have the energy to record. And I don't want to give you shoddy work, you know? I want this to be crisp and cool and clean and amazing every time. So I can promise that there will definitely be new episodes coming out, including a revamped, remastered wine episode. Um, But probably a little bit more sporadically until things settle down around my parts. Um... For those of you just joining us, thank you, thank you, thank you. I noticed some new listeners. Always appreciate a larger audience. Share with your friends, uh, share with your neighbors. Guys, this show is also perfect for children. Um, I know that everyone is schooling at home now, and sometimes if your children are like my six-year-old's nephew, um, they can get a little squirrely after a while, and I found that Nothing gets him to settle down like a nice little documentary or like a nature bite. So this is, try to do it, perfect children attention span length. So this week we have something delicious, something fantastic, staple of every pizza, tomato. So what is a tomato? Is it a fruit or is it a vegetable? Turns out it's technically both for various reasons and we'll get into that a little bit later. First, the etymology and the origin. So tomato is the red edible berry of Solanum lycopersicum, literally meaning nightshade wolf. Solanum meaning, you know, the nightshade family. And Lycopersicum, meaning wolf peach. This is because when the tomato first made it to the English-speaking world, um, it was thought to be immediately poisonous. It was recognized as a member of the nightshade family, and because so many members of the nightshade family are poisonous, um, they automatically thought um, this too was poisonous. Um, Wolf peach is a type of poisonous berry within the um, nightshade family and they would refer to this as the edible wolf peach essentially an edible version of the wolf peach Um, it's important to note many nightshades are not poisonous potatoes are a nightshade eggplants are a nightshade Uh, i think certain kinds of peppers technically fall in the nightshade family Um, But, you know, it's that thing of better safe than sorry. However, it took a very long time for a tomato to kind of get over this hurdle of being thought of as inherently poisonous. And it didn't help that um, for a lot of people, it was poisonous uh, to ingest tomatoes and tomato-based foods for a while. But I'm getting ahead of myself. 
Now, the word tomato comes from the Nahuatl or the Aztec word xiomato or the Aztec word xiomate. Um, researchers are unsure exactly which one of the words, either xiomate or xiomatl, refers to tomato and which word refers to tomatillo. Tomatillo being um, a different kind of plant. Um, we always think of it as like young green tomatoes um, because when the conquistadores and the historians of the 1400s and the 1500s, when they were writing about the tomato plant, they didn't really differentiate between tomato and tomatillo, um, between giomato and giomate. It was kind of all just the same thing to them. Uh, tomato was originally um, domesticated in Peru. The wild tomato is much smaller than any of the tomatoes we really think of today. In fact, I think the closest to what might have been like an old world ancient tomato might be the cherry tomato. Um, it was selectively bred over many years by um, the Aztecs in what is today Peru to, to create a tomato closer in taste to what we think of today. Now, tomatoes today are huge. The tomatoes then weren't that large, but they were bigger than um, the wild tomato. From Peru, it was brought to Europe by the conquistadors, first making its way to Spain, um, from Spain to Italy, from Italy to France, and then finally to England. It's kind of weird because you always think of tomato and Italy together and not really like tomato in America, but tomato is a plant native to the Americas. How did it become this Italian thing? Let's get into the European journey of the tomato. First, when the tomato was brought over to Europe, it was seen by people of means and money as a status symbol, but not to eat. It was planted in gardens as a decorative, beautiful plant, but again, they thought it was poisonous and it wasn't meant to be eaten. The few that did try and eat it were poisoned because the rich in those days ate off of pewter plates. Pewter is a lead-based metal. When the acid from the tomato and the tomato-based dishes would um, come in contact with the pewter, it would leach lead into the food, poisoning people. So the rich, for a very, very long time, thought of tomato as an inherently poisonous thing, pretty to look at, but not good to eat. However, the poor ate off of wooden plates, so they didn't have the same poisoning experience, um, and it quickly became popular. As time went on, um, the rich began to uh, eat tomatoes, and it, somehow it was still this thing of like status, like, oh, you know, this new delicacy that only we can afford, it's, you know, to bring these in fresh via, well, quote unquote, fresh via sea ship. Um, it somehow got um, rerouted into this thing, again, of exclusivity and um, of like newness and prestige. However, 
Most cookbooks don't really mention um, popular tomato recipes until about the late 1800s, even though the tomato had been in Europe for some time by then. This is probably because monks were writing down the recipes that they were making for royal households and for nobles. And you're not going to serve a new dish and memorialize that recipe if, you know, the it's an experimental food or, you know, it's still very much seen as like a poor food. Um, so it makes sense that the monks didn't begin to record their recipes f involving tomatoes until later when it was a safe uh, food in terms of job stability to be serving this to nobles and to um, royalty and, you know, not lose your head or your job. Over the years, the price of tomatoes decreased so much so that by the late 1800s they were cheap enough to hurl tomatoes at people that you were displeased with think Shakespeare think an angry crowd hurling soft no good tomatoes at the actors on the stage because they are unhappy with the job that they're doing. That's where this comes from. Tomatoes were so cheap that it was a vegetable that you could afford to waste in a time when most people could not afford to waste any food, really. So, where, you know, we've talked a lot about Europe, where the Italians come in. Listen. Right around the time that the tomato prices dropped, grain prices in Italy also dropped. Italian farmers began turning to tomatoes as a new source of revenue. And because Italian farmers were farming more tomatoes, you know, obviously there's going to be a push to sell more tomatoes in Italy. And thus you have a wealth of tomato based recipes that will forever become entwined with Italian culture. And this is because it started at the farmer level. You know, the dishes that last the most through time are dishes that started out because they were easy to make, they were comfort foods. So it makes sense that Italian farmers are gonna eat what they're producing and what they're producing is mostly tomatoes, then they're gonna have a lot of tomato-based dishes. But even though Italians are producing more tomatoes and tomatoes are way more cheap, um, you know, so cheap that you can throw them at strangers, they still aren't quite that popular at all anywhere in the world, not even in their birth um, land. You know, people weren't really eating tomatoes until the end of the Civil War. In America and that happened for a couple of different reasons first a company um, I believe it was an Italian company but I could be incorrect about that invented a way to process tomatoes to can them and and increase their shelf life through preservation this was the Anonymous Society of Farmers for the Preparation of Tomato Conserve. This is formed by a group of farmers in 1874. With the invention of being able to can tomatoes, that made it an excellent wartime food. 
because now you have something that you can feed your soldiers that will last and will provide sustenance and that's really when the popularity uptook it kind of just flew off from there so um most of the innovation with processing tomatoes and with preserving tomatoes really came out of Italy. Let's go through a brief boop, 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 boop. So first, around 1868 in, in Sicily, you have sun-dried tomatoes. This is not the sun-dried tomatoes that we think of today where it's, you know, this beautifully sweet, salty, sultry fruit, lovingly pressed, preserved in oil, this, the entire plant was harvested before it could be ripened completely and then laid out in the sun to dry. Later, that um, method became to chop the fresh tomatoes, fresh ripened tomatoes, boil them for an extended period of time, filter out the skin and seeds, and dry that in the sun. You got a really dark, rich sauce um, that you could essentially sunbake into cakes um, the first tomato paste I guess you could call it this was then wrapped in paper that was heavily oiled to help preserve it now you've just created a product that can easily survive a sea voyage easily be taken you know anywhere after that canned whole tomatoes I do have finally see in my notes that I can confirm this technology was invented in Naples the canned concentrate, like the new version of that uh, tomato conserve, the first kind is called, was invented in Parma. Around 1812 is when you have that first known recipe for ketchup. But um, around that time, ketchup and tomato sauce were kind of used interchangeably, so it's not really sure if that recipe is closer to the ketchup that we know and love today or more of a tomato sauce. So after you've prepared and preserved the whole plant, the whole meat of the fruit, um, came canned prepared soups. And with canned prepared soups, this advent of tomato is a health food, tomato's good for you, um, not just tomato, just soup in general was thought to be like this very, you know, good, helpful thing that was, you know, uh, a boon to one's health to ingest. Around 1897, a chemist working at the Campbell Soup Company invented a process for concentrating soups, for taking soups and making them thick enough that you could with a little bit of water, make a little can go a long way, but not quite um, getting it to like, tomato paste consistency. And around the time of condensed soups, there was also this burgeoning knowledge of vitamins and minerals and the role that they play in our health and nutrition. So that kind of just fed back into this, tomatoes are healthy, soup is really good for you. It's packed full of vitamins and nutrients, especially with, um, this concentrated soup because you can say you know it's extra concentrated it's full like super packed full of vitamins it's very very good for you remember this is the age of patent medicine 
We're not really going to get into patent medicine here in any kind of depth or detail, but the podcast Sawbones has many an episode on different kinds of um, patent medicine, and honestly, it's fascinating. So do give it a listen. Back in America, because, you know, this is... um, most of this popularity is really happening in in Europe and Italy. As you said, tomatoes were really popular until the Civil War, but similar to its European counterparts, it really took off after the invention of condensed soup. Now, Tomato soups were seen as helpful, but it wasn't the first time the idea of tomato as a cure for ills was brought up. In 1570, Francisco Hernandez noted that the tomato was used as a medicine in Mexico. It was seen in Europe as a potential medication for headaches, earaches, stomach aches, mumps, and something called the itch. Not clear if this was a a venereal or sexually transmitted disease or if it was like hives unclear but it was seen as something that could cure you know almost anything that ailed you um that mind you just tomatoes from there uh, you know patent medicine and and the rise of um invention of uh really all medications and you know, just enough knowledge to be dangerous. Um, People started coming out with tomato pills and tomato tonics to clear your skin and cure your headache and pep you up. You know, just all manner of things. I do apologize. My co-host Freya is frantically trying to get at a tennis ball. I'm just going to take a really quick break and help her out with that. Today, tomatoes are still recognized as being something that's very good for you. They are high in vitamin C, um, which is an excellent um, sorts of you know citric acid if you're trying to preserve foods. Um, tomatoes actually were the first ever genetically modified vegetable. Now, is tomato a fruit or a vegetable? Botanists have classified tomato as a fruit, um, but due to, you know, some legislative hinky-pinky, something with taxes, they have been now classified as a vegetable to be taxed as a vegetable. But that's something pure, that's a taxation thing. Botanists are still calling this a fruit. So, back to the GMOs. The initial... The initial genetically modified tomato was modified to increase the nutritional value, increase the flavor, and um, increase the texture to make it a little bit firmer, which allowed the tomato to be transported farther and longer with better results on arrival because often tomatoes needed to be planted where they would be eaten because they they became soft and mealy and generally undesirable upon arrival at their destination if they were shipped. So the first genetic modification took place because they wanted to be able to allow more people to travel with this fruit 
for longer distances. Today's genetically modified tomatoes are um, still on that, um, that vein of increasing the efficiency of the plant. They've been modified um, not to need sleep. Did you know tomatoes actually have a resting period? They sleep during the night. They don't have a growing period during the night. So a new genetically modified strain of tomato was invented so that the tomato would not need a uh, sleep cycle and would therefore have a 24 hour growth cycle allowing them to grow faster essentially. They're also working on a tomato that thrives in drought. Um, the drier the conditions are, the tastier um, the tomato gets, which if you think about today's climate situation, it could have so many practical and wonderful applications. There's new technology in the works that is working to use unfit tomatoes as a source of electricity. You know, the smushed tomatoes, the rotten tomatoes, things that you cannot in good conscience sell to a consumer for consumption, for eating. They're trying not to just have that go to landfills, but to repurpose that and create renewable energy sources from it. Many of today's seeds are copyrighted, mostly because of their genetically modified properties, whether the increased nutritional value or the increased flavor. And that's one of the problems with genetically modified organisms is that you are able to copyright essentially a seed. And so farmers in the olden days, before copyright of seeds, they would plant, they would buy seeds from a wholesaler. They would plant their seeds and then they would save part of their crop as seed for the next year. Unfortunately, farmers are now no longer able to do that easily as they are sued for copyright infringement from these major um, distributors of seeds. They have to harvest the entire crop and buy new seeds every year. What that means is if a farmer has a very difficult harvest one year and doesn't have as much money coming in, they're going to then continue to have a difficult time as they will be unable to buy as many seeds as they had the day before. What's the solution to this? Heirloom seeds. I know you've heard the term heirloom tomato. They're all these wonderful colors. They're juicy and honestly ridiculously large. These tomatoes don't have a copyright attached to their seeds. The seeds were selectively bred for generations. This is seen as more of like a natural modification. And so they don't have a copyright that belongs to a particular person. This could be, uh, you know, family passed down, or there are companies now that are really focused on propagating heirloom seeds. And the beauty of heirloom seeds is that it encourages diversity, genetic diversity within the vegetable, and increases sustainability, meaning that it, you know, it's not going to be difficult to continue to grow these plants over and over from scratch um, and increased flavor profiles. And this is because, you know, one of the things that a genetically modified organism wants to do is create uniformity. With uniformity, you will always have um, 
room for error, room for disaster to strike. For example, did you know that all bananas are clones of the Cavendish banana? The banana was originally genetically modified to um, create resistance to a type of mold that was killing off banana plants. After the success of that genetically modified organism, um, it became like this is the only banana that we really use in, in commercial property. Well, now they're seeing that um, nature has evolved to to come to grips with this new, hardier banana, and there's a new disease affecting bananas. Now, if this disease gets so out of control, there could conceivably be a period where there are no bananas because they've all fell victim to this one um, disease or this one bug because they're all clones. They all have the same weaknesses. With an heirloom seed, all of this, the plants will be sisters. They'll be very similar, but they'll have enough diversity from other things coming in that, um, you know, they'll have a, a healthier immune system. They'll be more resistant to um, maybe not to drought, but maybe to different types of bugs. So there are, there are pros and cons to every side. A little bit of folklore, your fun facts for the week. Tomatoes were always seen as good luck. Tomato pin cushions are given as good luck gifts. I have not heard that, but apparently they're given as good luck gifts. And fresh tomatoes used to be left on the hearths of new homes for good luck. And that is one of the best housewarming freebie gifts I could possibly think of, and I can't wait to take advantage of it. Today's recipe comes from MFK Fisher's book, How to Cook a Wolf. We've mentioned this book before on this podcast. It's a wonderful resource of recipes that are geared toward making a little go a long way. This is a surprising recipe. I wouldn't necessarily think of putting these things together, but it's really a way of still having that sweet something that you crave when you cannot use milk. Because of that, it's really easy to take this and make this vegan or vegetarian if you need it to. Um, although, I guess all cakes are vegetarian. Anyway, it's really easy to make this um, gluten-free if you needed to or vegan if you needed to. Let's get into the recipe for tomato soup cake. This recipe calls for three tablespoons of butter or shortening, one cup of sugar, one teaspoon of baking soda, one teaspoon of cinnamon, one teaspoon of nutmeg, ginger, and cloves mixed, one can or 16 ounces of tomato soup, two cups of flour, one and one half cup raisins, nuts, chopped figs, what have you. Essentially something for texture. Cream together the butter and the sugar and blend thoroughly. You're not going to want any lumps. Add the baking soda to the soup in a separate bowl stir them well together and then in a third bowl alternate between the tomato soup mixture and the um, 
flour and spices um, sifted together. Stir well and bake in a pan or a loaf tin at 325 degrees for 30 to 40 minutes. You're uh, really going to want to just check the cake and take it out when it's golden brown. You'll know that your cake is done when a toothpick or a knife or a fork inserted comes out clean. It, that means um, for all you novice bakers, it won't have any bits of batter on it. That's it for us this week. Thank you so much for your patronage and your patience, dear listeners. Um, the full in in person, I guess you could say, visual recipe is up on our website at blenderkitchen.com. Take over and um, swing. Take over and take a swing. Swing by and take a look. Um, if you do make this recipe or any of the other recipes on our website, please drop us a line on Instagram at Blender Kitchen. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Um, you know, thank you for all your support and can't wait to talk with you again.